Our first speaker is Pastor Milton Vincent. Comes to us from Southern California, suffering for Jesus in Riverside. Has for the past 23 years, as he's pastored Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, He and his wife Donna live there, as well as a couple of their children. Uh, But he uh, comes to us uh, and, uh, again, has written this book, A Gospel Primer. I cannot talk about this book enough. Uh, but we, we use it for our own souls. Many of us here on, on the pastoral staff, we're, just, we're in this book constantly. But then we use it so much uh, with new counselees or as our small group leaders uh, look for a resource. We're constantly waving this in front of them. And so we're delighted to have Pastor Milton with us. Uh, would you please welcome him as he comes? Good evening. Actually, I am suffering for Jesus out in Southern California, uh, where I live. The temperatures have been uh, well over 100 uh, through uh, the month of of September. So I'm actually very happy uh, to be out of there uh, right now and happy to be here. It is good to be um, with all of you. One of the things that Tyson did not... Uh, share with you about me is that I am a sinner saved by the amazing grace of God. Um, And God has, you know, if he treated me according to what I deserve, um, I know where I would be. I would be suffering the torments of the lake of fire right now. But instead of giving me what I deserve uh, from his holy hand, God has lavished his grace on me. He has forgiven me of the sins of a lifetime. He has brought me into relationship with himself. He um, has clothed me with his uh, perfect righteousness. And he's given me a huge gospel inheritance. And you are a part of my gospel inheritance. And I'm happy to claim all of you uh, tonight. Uh, So God's grace is amazing. I deserve to be in hell, but instead I'm in Florence, Kentucky um, with uh, with all of you. And when I look at you, uh, I'm impressed. You are the advanced track people. So I've never hung around with advanced track people. So um, this is definitely going to go on my resume that I spoke did seminars for the advanced track of a counseling and discipleship conference. Um, But when I look at you, even more importantly, I know that Christ shed his blood for you, so that attaches huge value to your soul. I know that he loves you uh, deeply, and therefore it's a massive privilege for me to just be your servant uh, tonight and also tomorrow And I know that I'm inadequate. I appreciate the prayer that was prayed just a few moments ago because my prayer has been and is right now that God will help me to be your servant tonight and tomorrow morning. If you guys want to talk to me afterwards or tomorrow, any way that I can serve you, it would be my honor uh, to do that. Um, This is not in your notes, but you can write this reference down. I believe it's uh, Proverbs 15.30. Proverbs 15.30, Solomon makes an interesting statement about the power of good news. 
Uh, He says, good news puts fat on the bones. You ever read that? Good news puts fat on the bones. That might make some of you afraid to listen to good news, or maybe you're wondering if you've been listening to too much good news. Uh, But actually, in the mind of Solomon, that's a good thing to have fat on your bones. The bones were viewed as the core of our physical constitution, what gave structure to our bodies. And um, in fact, in his day, the marrow of the bones was viewed as the source of, of life. And so what Solomon is saying is that good news exerts, it wields a tremendous power on the recipients of that uh, news. It affects them in the deepest parts of their being and changes them. It brings fullness to their lives and fullness to their bones. Uh, And this is in any area. Any genuinely good news that you hear makes a difference in your life on some level. Several years ago, uh, I received news that I was getting a $1,900 refund on my taxes. And I had gone into that tax season expecting to owe some, but I was so happy to hear that not only did I not owe any money, but I was actually getting a refund of $1,900. I can't tell you how much that impacted me and made my day. I was in a good mood the entirety of that day. I was a cheerful husband to my wife after receiving that news. I was a patient and easygoing dad to my children after receiving that news. I was less anxious about our financial future, and it even made a difference in my driving. I was a more patient driver on the road on that particular day. I had literally, my heart was just filled with a spirit of goodwill towards all other drivers (laughs) on that day. And I remember sitting at a four-way stop uh, intersection, and I waited my turn, and it was clearly my time to go, but someone crossing in front of me decided to go and, and um, before I did, even though I was entitled to go. Normally, I might have been a little bit irritated by that, but not on this day. I was feeling good, just waved them on and said, you go ahead, it's all good, it's all good, because I'm getting a $1,900 refund <laughs> on my taxes. That's the power of good news, right? Well, take what Solomon says there in the... Old Testament and what you know in terms of the power of hearing good news and multiply it by a billion and you begin to approximate uh, the, the truth of the power of the ultimate good news, the good news of the gospel. Solomon says good news puts fat on the bones. Paul in the New Testament, says it a little bit differently, but he's saying the same thing. Romans 1.16, the gospel, the good news, is the power of God literally into salvation to everyone who is believing. Paul is saying there that the gospel is not just a power of God. It's not just a location where God's power resides and does some of its work. He's saying that the gospel is the ultimate location where God's power resides and does its most phenomenal work. 
And so if we want our lives to be yoked with the power of God, if we want our marriages to be yoked with the power of God, if we want our ministry to other people, our parenting of our children and our counseling ministry to other people, if we want all of that to be laced with the power of God, then we will want to be living in the good of the gospel and keeping it always before our face and always putting it before the faces of those that we are ministering to. Amen? Um, People have asked me when it comes to counseling, you know, what is the role of the gospel in counseling? And my answer is, what is the role of air in breathing? It's everything. The gospel doesn't just play a role in our counseling. It is our counsel. It's what we deliver. And whether we're counseling non-believers or believers, uh, what we do is we present the gospel and try to help people to think gospel and then reason from the gospel to the various ethical, theological, relational, uh, or moral areas where they may be suffering some defects. The older I get, the deeper in the ministry I go, I become more and more of a one-tool pastor. I got one tool in my toolbox, and that is the gospel. So anyone who comes to me, I listen to them, And then I'm thinking, hmm, what do they need? I know the gospel. I'm always evaluating where's the gospel defect? What gospel truth have they never learned or have they forgotten and are not believing? And then I begin to evangelize them, even believing people with the gospel and then tease out the ramifications of the gospel to the area of their life where they are struggling And there is no topic that I have found as a pastor where the gospel needs more to be applied than the topic of forgiveness. And so when someone comes to you, and even in your own life this is true, but when someone comes to you and they're struggling with anger and bitterness uh, and having trouble forgiving someone who has wronged them, that person needs you to evangelize them. They may be a non-believer. They may have known the Lord for 20 years. They need you to evangelize them. I hope you guys, I think you guys understand because you're advanced people that evangelism is not just something you do to lost people, right? You know that? In the Bible, there's pre-conversion evangelism and post-conversion evangelism. Most of the evangelizing Paul does in the New Testament uh, is to believers, explaining and preaching the gospel to born-again believers, to the Roman Christians in Romans 1.15, Paul says, I'm eager to evangelize you who are at Rome. That's literally the language there. He's talking to believers. Paul could not go to Rome, uh, so he writes them a letter. And what is the book of Romans? But the fullest explanation of the gospel found anywhere in the New Testament, and it was all written to believers. Here's the gospel, chapters 1 through 11, and then here's the ramifications of that and how to live that out and unleash the gospel in your life, chapters 12 through 16. And what we're going to do in these sessions is, is to focus on the area of forgiveness and applying the gospel to this matter of forgiveness. You'll notice session 1 notes that 
the way we're entitling all four sessions is evangelizing those who wrong you. Evangelizing those who uh, wrong you. I want to begin by just expanding a little bit maybe the, the normal understand, understanding of evangelism. Um, evangelism is not simply what we say. It involves that, but it's more than that. We can define what it means to evangelize with three definitions here on your notes. Number one, it means to preach the gospel. We all understand that. Number two, uh, we can define it this way, to impart the gospel to others through word and through deed. Or to say it yet a third way, evangelism entails... This is not all that it is, but whatever definition you give of evangelism, it needs to include this idea that it entails being a living embodiment of the gospel in relationship with other people. We get this from 1 Thessalonians 1.5 where Paul is reflecting back on his ministry to the Thessalonians and he says, looking back, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. So the gospel did come to you through the words we spoke, he says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see what Paul is saying there? What he's saying is our gospel did not just come to you through the words we spoke, but it also came to you in the form of the kind of men we were among you in relationship with you for your sake. And so you evangelize people by not just speaking gospel truth and gospel grace to them, but by being a living embodiment of that truth and grace in the way that you go about relating uh, to them. And forgiveness is one of those critical ways of doing that. When I forgive my wife for uh, some failure, um, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm being a living embodiment of the grace of the gospel to her. I'm mirroring that gospel reality that I myself am a recipient uh, of. My goal is to be the premier evangelist in my wife's life, to where when she's reading Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and she reads about the fact that she's forgiven and redeemed, that she reads that and says, I find this easy to believe because I taste this in my marriage. I am a recipient of this kind of grace in my marriage. And so in that way, my goal would be to evangelize her, to be a living embodiment of the grace of the gospel, as well as speaking gospel truth to uh, her. So whenever, in fact, let me ask you this question. How many of you would say that your desire is to go deeper in your understanding and experience of the grace of the gospel? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, if that is truly your desire, God will happily honor that desire. And one of the ways he will do that is by scheduling into your life people who wrong you. <laughs> so that you will have a chance to go deeper in your appreciation of God's grace toward you. And then that that grace can flow through you toward that person who has wronged you. And thus, that exercise brings you closer 
to the heart of the gospel. So expect that. When people wrong you, that's not an interruption. Uh, That is actually in the plan of God, and it will take you deeper into the gospel. I have found, as a pastor of 23 years, uh, that a host of problems lie downstream of unforgiveness. Ulcers, diseases, anxieties, depression, violence, verbal assaults, uh, broken marriages, church splits, uh, lack of relationship with God, fellowship with God, even eternal damnation in some cases. All of that stuff lies downstream often of unforgiveness. So as a counselor, uh, it is wise for us to go upstream of all of that mess and to target the unforgiveness that is in somebody's heart. When you do that, and by God's grace, God uses you to bring them to a place of forgiveness, you literally often have just slain a thousand giants. When David looked at the Philistines, probably thousands of them standing across the valley, he could have thought, man, Lord, you want me to fight all of those Philistine soldiers? That's not what he thought, was it? No, his thought was, I'm going to go after the big guy, the one with the loud mouth. And he did, and he killed him and beheaded him. And the rest of the Philistine soldiers fled, and Israel had to chase after them for a fight. As a pastor and all of us as counselors, what we want to do is we want to go after those Goliaths, right? And if we can go after them and slay them, that's a surgical strike. And so much benefit lies downstream of that. I'm sure you've observed that unforgiveness, um, I wouldn't have thought this going into the ministry, but categorically I would say that unforgiveness is the number one destroyer of marriages, the number one destroyer of relationships. Um, And so it's so important that we target this, and it is definitely uh, worthy of the four sessions that we'll give to it. We'll see how far we get in this session, but let's start off by trying to define what we mean by uh, forgiveness. There are actually two words that are in the New Testament that are translated in some of our English translations as forgive. There's one word that literally means to put away or to send away. So literally, when this particular Greek word is used, it means to send away. And what's interesting about this word is that sometimes it talks about forgiving or sending away the sin And other times, the object of that sending away is the sinner or the offender. So you can fill in the blank that in some passages, uh, this sending away, this forgiving, uh, speaks of forgiving sin. All right? What does it mean to send away sin? Well, what it means is that when someone has offended you, that sin that they have committed is situated now between you and them, and it's front and center in your consciousness whenever you look upon them or relate to them. You see them through the lens of that sin. And so to forgive them, in part, means to send away the sin, to send it out from between the two of you and to choose no longer to hold that sin against the, the offender, okay? Uh, But also to forgive, um, here's the second object, the offender. 
when we forgive, we're not just sending away the sin, but we're sending away literally the offender. The offender. You might say, wow, I like that definition because I'm just going to start sending away everyone who wrongs me. And I've already done some sending away, and so now I'm glad to know I've been biblical all these years. Um, But actually, that's not the kind of sending away that the Bible uh, talks about. You see Matthew 18, 30, and this will help us with this, that Jesus actually uses the metaphor of imprisonment to describe what we do to people that we are refusing to forgive. Uh, He speaks of the uh, unfaithful steward who threw the person who owed him the debt and he threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when someone wrongs us, what we tend to do is we create this prison cell of retaliation or consequence and we put that person in that prison cell and we close the door and we won't let them out right? Uh, And these prison cells look look different. Uh, Maybe it's the prison cell of verbal lashings, an angry countenance, withholding things, gossiping or backstabbing about them, saying, can you believe what so-and-so did? And we're assassinating their reputation in conversation with others. Um, Some of us put uh, people in high-grade punishment prisons, Um, where they are the recipient of very significant consequences from us. But often what we do, I know I'm I'm so guilty of this, we we put people in a low-grade, passive-aggressive kind of prison cell. We might even occasionally let them out on probation. But if they mess up one time, they go back. Okay? And there are a number of people who reach a point in their life, maybe they're 40 years old, 45 years old, and, and there's just a whole slew of people in their life that they have in various prison cells of consequence. We've had people over the years in our church that when they show up church on Sunday, there's so many people in the church body that they're offended at that they have in various kinds of prison cells. And it's like a maze when they show up at church to know who to avoid. And this person's coming, I'm going to turn and just act like I don't see them. That's kind of the low-grade prison that they have them in. And at times, I've seen people um, just go up to someone and just give them a tongue lashing. But I just want you to have that metaphor in your mind and even evaluate the degree to which you are doing this. Even in marriage, a wife uh, may send her husband to the doghouse. It's actually not a doghouse. Jesus would say that's a prison of consequence that you're banishing your husband to until he pays what is owed to you. So now, with that understanding, we have the equipment to understand what it means to send away someone who's offended us. It means to go to that prison cell of consequence and open the door of that cell and to let the person out and just literally send them away from that prison cell of consequence and retaliation that we in our flesh would love to visit upon them. So that's one word for uh, forgiveness in the New Testament. 
A second word for forgiveness in the New Testament is the word that is often translated as grace, the verb grace, to grace somebody. Um, And there's three blanks under here. Let me just uh, give you three words to always think about when you think of the word grace. Number one, think of favor. Favor, both in terms of disposition and also practical, doing practical good that is designed to be a blessing to somebody. Um, And you say, well, there's a lot of people in my life that I'm showing favor to in that way. Well, there's two other words to think about when you think of grace. Uh, At the top of the next page, I believe, at least in my notes, write the word undeserved. When you grace someone, you're favoring and doing practical kindness to them to be a blessing to them. And it's a kindness that they don't deserve, okay? But grace actually includes a third element. There's a third word you need to think about when you think of the word grace, and that is ill-deserved. Ill-deserved. In other words, not only is this favor you're showing undeserved, but it's the opposite of what has, in fact, been earned. Does that make sense? So if I'm working for an employer, I show up and I work for a week, and at the end of the week, I ask my boss, can you give me my paycheck? And he gives me the paycheck. I would say, thank you. That's a favor. He's doing kindness to me and giving me that check, but that's not grace because I earned it. If I don't go into work one week and I play around the whole week for no reason, I'm not sick, I just don't show up, I don't do any work, I don't serve the company in any way, but at the end of the week, I call my boss and say, give me a paycheck for this past week. If my boss said, sure, and he wrote me a paycheck, that's grace because he's giving me something that I have failed to earn. But that's not the full meaning of grace. If during that week I not only do not show up for work, but one night I show up at the company campus and commit a criminal act of arson and burn the building down, and in the process the boss's son was in the building and he dies in that fire, and then I call my boss and say, I know I didn't work, And I know that I committed a criminal act, and I know that that resulted in the death of your son, but can you give me a paycheck for the last week? If that boss says, I'm going to pay you for a week of work, that's grace, okay? So we can't say, man, I know I'm supposed to be gracing people in this way, and I would happily do that if they were more deserving. We can't talk that way. Grace, by its very definition, is giving to people what they've not earned and the opposite of what they have earned. And, man, if you just got saved tonight and you're reading in Ephesians and Paul says, be continuously gracing one another, that ought to sober you. Like, wow, apparently that means that in the church I'm going to be dealing with people all the time who are doing things to me wherein they're earning from me the opposite of favor. And I'm being told to grace them the way that God has graced me in Christ. So sweeping all of this together, we can define forgiveness in this way. To forgive is to send away the sin from between you and the one who sinned against you and to hold that sin against the offender no more 
be to release or to send away the offender from the prison cell of consequences that they deserve from you as a result of the sins that they have committed against you and C, to positively favor them with blessings that they do not deserve. Guys, forgiveness means more than just withholding retaliation. It entails that, but it involves proactively moving towards the offender and doing real and practical good to them. So you look at that and say, all right, I know what forgiveness is. I know that I am called to it, but Pastor Milton, I don't want to do this. We all like the idea of forgiveness, right? It's like C.S. Lewis says, we all think forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive, right? Um, And often when we are wronged, to forgive is the last thing that we want to do. Often when you're counseling someone who is filled with anger um, and you tell them the Bible's teaching that they need to forgive, they're not there. They're just not there. And they may know and say to you, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm not there. I don't want to forgive. And so when I'm counseling uh, people in our church family, um, I, what I like to do is to tell them that there are four steps entailed in forgiveness. Four steps of forgiveness. And the first of the four is the one that I spend the most time on because that first step basically amounts to the journey to forgiveness. Okay? Does that make sense? And then three, or two, three, and four is the journey through forgiveness. It's what's actually entailed in forgiving. But I've just found that people need shepherding. They need help in getting from where they are right now, a place of anger and bitterness, to the place of grace and uh, forgiveness. I remember... A handful of years ago, there was a husband who uh, came to me and another pastor in our church and uh, confessed to us a string of infidelities. Just, and he was just sharing with us what he could remember. He says, I'm still remembering. It was just such a mess, such a long, long, sordid history to where he was only recalling some of it and he was bringing the mess to us and And he wanted to confess this to his wife and get it out in the open. And so uh, pretty quickly we got his wife into the office and uh, opened with prayer. And then we just said to her, your husband has some things that he wants to confess to you. And this husband began to confess his unfaithfulness to his wife. And I knew more of the full scope of what was, you know, what he was going to share He wasn't one-tenth of the way, one-tenth of the way into his confession when she stood up and ran out of my office into the lobby and screamed at the top of her lungs, a blood-curdling scream that just cut me like a knife. There was a sister who was there, one of our pastor's wives, and she went out and talked to her, and after a few minutes, she was able to bring her, coax her back in, and this wife sat there uh, expressionless, just in shock, and just listened to her husband confess to the rest of these 
infidelities. And then when he was done, he's like, and honey, this is, this is all that I can remember. I know that there's more. And this wife turned and looked at me. She couldn't even talk. Uh, she asked no questions. She just looked at me completely puzzled, in shock, in a daze. And I'm, I'm looking at this precious sister, and I'm just thinking, what do I say to her? What do I say? Do I say, sister, the Bible commands you to forgive. You need to forgive your husband. Is that what should come out of my mouth? I knew in that moment that what could come out of my mouth could either do enormous good or enormous damage to the soul of this woman. What would you say in that moment? Um, What I did say to her is, listen, there is a long road ahead for you and your husband, and we're going to be with you every step of the way. And there are things that God would ask of you and call upon you to do in this situation. And for some reason, I said to her, I can't voice that right now. But I'm going to ask you, are you willing to go on a journey that will lead you to a place of healing and forgiveness? And she nodded her head and said, yes. She was not in a place of forgiveness in that moment. She didn't even know yet all. It hadn't even fully sunk in what she needed to forgive. But she was willing to go on a journey that would lead her to a place of healing and forgiveness. And so we began on that journey. And of the four steps of forgiveness, we began doing what I I call a 360 around the cross. Um, You know, I used to feel so much pressure as a counselor in counseling people, almost as if it was up to me to make something happen. What I have found over the years is my job is to take my finger and point to Jesus and point to the cross, to invite people there and to just walk around the cross with them and share what we see together. And I have found that when I do that, I have to put on my running shoes to keep up with what God is doing in that person's life. I could never bring that woman to a place of forgiveness, but Jesus could if she were willing to just simply go to the foot of the cross and walk with us around that cross and do some gospel thinking. And that leads us to the first step of forgiveness, and that is go to the cross and do some gospel thinking Go to the cross and do some gospel thinking. Uh, We as Christians do not think enough um, about the cross. We don't spend enough time there. Uh, R.C. Ryle said, A spiteful, quarrelsome Christian is a scandal. It is doubtful that such a one has sat at the foot of the cross. Just notice that. He's He's not really questioning their salvation or whether they've ever been to the cross. He's just saying, when I see a spiteful and quarrelsome Christian, I conclude thereby that they clearly have not been sitting at the foot of the cross. See, the cross is not just a place you go to get saved. Once saved, 
It is a place to frequent, to visit, to sit, and to stare, and to admire, and to learn, and to experience the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian, you know, goes to the cross and beholds Christ dying there and the burden, if you've read it, the burden of sin rolls off his back. So he's saved, all right? He's converted His sin burden has been removed. He doesn't say, okay, good, I'm glad that happened. I'm moving on with my life, and I'm glad I never have to look at that again. Is that what he said? No. In fact, look at what it says in Pilgrim's Progress. Then, this is after the sin burden was gone, then Christian stood a while to look and wonder, for he was very surprised that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden in such a way. He looked, therefore, and looked again until, or even until the spring in his head sent their waters flowing down his cheeks. Already converted, already saved, already forgiven. But he's like, you know what, I'm going to stick around and look. And the more he looked, the more he wept over the grace of what he was seeing there. If we've already been saved through what Christ did at the cross, we are invited to live at the foot of the cross, to sit there and to study and to think about what we see there. I made a list um, a few years ago, just sitting at the foot of the cross and just writing down all the things that I know to be true, that I can see to be true just by being here at the foot of the cross, and I came up with a list of like 31 things that I know to be true just based on what I see at the foot of the cross. This 360 around the cross that I like to take people through that we're trying to help with uh, forgiveness includes eight of those thoughts. So what we'll try to do, not just tonight and uh, in this session and the next one, but also end of tomorrow, we're going to spend time looking at these eight thoughts that we can think at the foot of the cross and we can help other people to think at the foot of the cross when they are wanting to be moved to a place of forgiveness. Okay? Are you guys interested? All right. That's good because it's the only message I brought. Uh, (laughs) All right, thought number one that they can think and we can think at the foot of the cross when we're hurting and on the receiving end of pain is this. Christ has suffered as I am suffering right now and infinitely more so, which means that I am never alone in any pain. This woman whose husband had committed adultery um, like I didn't even want to start with, hey, let's go to the cross. See how see your sins and how you've been forgiven. Now forgive your husband. I didn't even want to start there. I wanted to start with her at the foot of the cross seeing that Jesus suffered also just as much and more so than she is suffering. And what that means is that she's not alone in her pain, but Christ gets it. And he's with her. In Isaiah 53, it's interesting, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years or so before uh, Christ was crucified, 
miraculously basically looked into the future and saw the, uh, the Messiah dying on the cross and he wrote down what he observed. And it's interesting that before Isaiah even articulates any observations about the dying Messiah in connection with sin, he makes another, he makes an observation before then regarding something that he noticed that the Messiah was bearing. Look at this, Isaiah 53. He notices and gives voice to the fact that this dying Messiah is a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with grief. And then he says, surely, indeed, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yes, Christ bore our sin. He's going to get to that. But before he even gets to that, he makes note of the fact that indeed, while this Savior is dying, he's bearing our griefs and he's bearing our sorrows. So we can say to anyone that we are counseling who is on the receiving end of wrong that Christ at the cross bore your every sorrow your every grief, your every pain, even the pain and the grief that you feel and experience on the receiving end of wrongdoing, any pain you ever experience in any way, shape, or form, Jesus bore that, exactly that, while on the cross. Does that make sense? Um, It's almost as if, if we can think about it this way, Christ saying to the Father, you know, Father, I'm, I'm going to be dying on the cross, and I know that when I die on the cross, I'm going to be bearing the sins of those who would believe in me. But Father, could I ask you to do something? When I am on the cross, can you, while I am there, take every pain and every sorrow and every grief that Milton Vincent will ever know in his life? And can you put the sum total of all of that on me, so that while on the cross I would bear and experience that firsthand on the cross. And the Father says, I'll do that. And when Jesus was on the cross, all of your pains, all of your sorrows, all of your griefs were placed upon Jesus, and He felt it. He experienced your every sorrow and your every grief. You should be able to go to the foot of the cross in your moments of pain and say, surely he bore this sorrow and this pain that I am experiencing. He is acquainted with this pain. This pain that I'm feeling today, he felt this exactly 2,000 years ago. The sorrow that I am experiencing is a pre-experienced sorrow. It's already been experienced by Jesus, who deliberately placed himself underneath the experience of this pain that I am experiencing on the receiving end of wrong or any pain that it may entail. Um, And what's interesting is that Jesus, when he had a chance going to the cross and being crucified to receive medication... He refused the medication. I'm not trying to make any points about whether we should take medication or not. 
Um, all I just want to point out is that when Jesus had an opportunity to take medication, he refused it. In Mark 15, 23, it says they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They were giving him that to numb his senses, to dull his senses, and Jesus refused it, meaning that he wanted his senses to be at their keenest, their sharpest. He wanted to feel everything. When on the cross, when he's not only bearing our sins, but when he's bearing our sorrows, our griefs, and our pains. That should mean something to us. Imagine that he did accept the medication. How much comfort would it be if Christ came to you in your moments of pain and said, Hey, I just want to comfort you in the thought that when I was on the cross, I bore your every sorrow and grief. I was heavily medicated when I did so. So I hardly felt anything, but just know theologically that I bore your every sorrow and grief. How much comfort would that be to you or to me? It wouldn't be a huge comfort. But Christ, he wanted to feel it all in all of its awfulness, your every sorrow and your every grief while on the cross. And when you're talking to someone who's hurting and they need to ultimately forgive, this is a great place to start to let them know that they have a Savior who on the cross experienced and felt exactly what they're going through right now because he wanted to, so that in this moment of their life, he can be their ultimate and sympathetic friend who walks with them inside this experience of pain. In Hebrews 4, 15 The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize or literally feel with or suffer with our weakness. Uh, we, We have Jesus in the heavens who when we experience pain and sorrow and grief, he feels something. It resonates with him. And part of the reason why is because when he was on the cross, he already experienced that. And so it resonates with him. A number of years ago, 13 years ago, I was, here, I was in Indiana, uh, where my family lives, Indianapolis, and I was playing basketball, um, and a guy, one of our family members went up for a shot, and I jumped up to block his shot, and back then my vertical jump was like 24 inches, so it's nothing to speak of. But when I landed, I landed on the side of my foot, and I rolled my ankle. And even to this day, it's the worst physical pain that I've ever known in my life. Everything turned white, and I crumpled to the ground, just seized with pain. It was a severe uh, tear. There was uh, bruising almost up to my knee from, from the tear. I share that to say this, that, that ever since that experience, when I'm watching TV, football game, basketball game, and... And I see a slow motion replay of someone rolling their ankle. I feel something physically when I see that. All right? And it's kind of a triangle experience. What it does is it takes me back to what I experienced and felt 13 years ago. I'm also seeing their pain. And I am feeling myself a sympathy with and for them. That's what happens to Christ today 
at the right hand of God when he sees us experiencing sorrows and griefs. They resonate with him because he loves us, feels so deeply for us, and because at the cross he already experienced that sorrow and that grief. So we have a Savior who is engaged. In your moments of pain on the receiving end of wrong, you can know that I've got someone inside that circle of pain who is feeling together with me. Here's why this is important. Nothing isolates like pain, right? Think of the loneliest moments in your life were not those lonely moments, moments where you were in terrific pain, physical Spiritual, emotional pain. Uh, Pain is an isolating experience. Even if there are people physically around you, no one really gets it, do they? You may even have a sympathetic friend who tries to understand, and that brings some comfort to you to the degree that they seem to understand. But no one fully can get inside that circle of your pain. Inside that circle of pain is a lonely place to be. And what I have found is that oftentimes when Christians retaliate against someone who's wronged them, it's not always, it's never right, all right? But it's not always because that person's just a pure embodiment of evil and they just want to lash out. Often they retaliate because they're lonely inside that circle of pain and they want to inflict hurt on somebody else proportionate to what they are experiencing in an attempt to get other people inside that circle of pain with them. Does that make sense? Um, It's like I'm hurting. I can't sleep at night. I'm fuming over this. I'm physically sick over what's happened. And the person who's inflicted this on me, they're sleeping well at night. They're not hurting or suffering at all, and that's not right. And they can lash out, they can retaliate in various ways in order to inflict hurt to the degree that they feel like they themselves are hurting in an attempt to get that other person inside their circle of pain. Well, when we go to the foot of the cross and we see that Jesus has experienced that at the cross and he is already inside that circle with us, it cuts at the root that instinct for revenge in order to solve our loneliness inside of our pain. We already have such a sympathetic high priest um, who is with us, who feels together with us, and we are never, we are never alone inside of our pain. This is part of the truth of the gospel. It's one of these gospel truths that we can bring to those who are hurting on the receiving end of wrong and help them to think about and see at the foot of the cross to help them in their journey ultimately to a place of forgiveness.